Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you very much for the comments about last week's episode. It certainly seems to have made an impression on a number of you, so thank you for the feedback. Today's episode is chilling for very different reasons, and I hope you enjoy. On September the 20th, 2013, Terry Goff died peacefully. He was aged 71. He was survived by his wife Sylvia, four children and grandchildren. But when Terry died, he still suffered from the pain of not seeing justice for the person who had brutally murdered one of his daughters over 20 years ago. June 1988 was a golden time for UK music, arguably. Bros were number two with I Owe You Nothing, just behind the Time Lords, i.e. KLF, with Doctor in the TARDIS. Didn't you just love KLF at that time? In the US, Rick Astley was top of the charts with Together Forever. Have you seen Matty recently? I had to do a double take as I actually think he looks younger today than back then. With the Masters coming up, let's take a look at golf. In golf in 1988, in June, Curtis Strange had just won the US Open and Microsoft released MS-DOS 4.0. Remember that? At this time, Terry and Sylvia Goff lived in St John's, which is a suburb of Worcester. Worcester is a really pretty English city. It's close to the Welsh border and around 31 miles southwest of Birmingham and 27 miles north of Gloucester. The River Severn flanks the western side of the city centre, which is overlooked by the magnificent 12th century Worcester Cathedral. Composer Sir Edward Elgar's father ran a music shop in High Street and a statue of Elgar stands near the original site. Elgar himself was born in 1857 in Broadheath, which is just outside Worcester. Terry and Sylvia had five daughters, one of whom was called Marie, who, when we take up the story in 1988, was 22. After leaving school, she had trained as a nurse, but she had given up her career when she married Alan, who was five years her senior. At this time, Alan was a self-employed carpenter, but he also did voluntary work with the Hereford and Worcester Army Cadet Force. They had a young son, Mark, who was 13 months old, and Marie was seven months pregnant with their second child. On Saturday the 18th June 1988, Marie planned to drive to Simmons Yacht in the nearby Wye Valley to meet her husband Adrian, who was instructing some 43 boys from the Army Cadet Force. She drove her son Mark to her parents' house, where she picked up her younger sister, Georgina. At that stage, she was 11 years old. Marie had only passed her driving test two months ago, and this was her first big trip in the family's Morris Marina Coupe. She left at 7pm. Marie intended to use country roads, but she took the wrong turning on her way back to Worcester and she ended up on the M50 motorway. To make matters worse, her car then broke down on the eastbound carriageway. Now this was the days before mobile phones, and so Marie had to walk the 700 yards or so to the nearest emergency phone. It wasn't going to take her too long, so she left the two children in the car and walked to the phone along the hard shoulder of the motorway, which was, as you can imagine, very busy at that time on a Saturday evening. At 7.37pm, Marie called the police from the motorway, asking them to contact her parents so they could pick her up and the two children. At 7.40pm, the police called her parents as requested. Marie's mum answered the phone, but her husband Terry was out fishing with the family car, so he was unable to pick her up. At 7.41pm, the police operator tried to relay the message back to Marie, 
but he couldn't contact her. All he could hear was background traffic. The police operative on the call kept repeating, Mrs Wilkes, Mrs Wilkes, over and over again, but there was no response from Marie, only the sound of the motorway traffic. At 7.44, they again tried to contact Marie, but once more there was no answer, just the sound of that traffic racing past on the motorway. Just five minutes later, at 7.49pm, a police car picked up Marie's sister Georgina, who'd wondered where Marie was, and she was found walking along the hard shoulder, carrying her baby nephew. At 7.51pm, the police operator called for a breakdown vehicle to be dispatched, asking them to get to the broken down car as quickly as possible because of Marie's pregnancy. And at 7.59pm, the police issued a radio message that Marie was missing. Marie's mum quickly provided the police with a description of what her daughter was wearing that day as four squad cars raced to the scene. A foot search of the area started and the emergency phone that was used by Marie was found hanging down by its cord. Just 10 minutes later at 8.10pm, the police helicopter arrived at the scene using a thermal imager but was unable to detect any signs of Marie. The police made another call to Marie's family but the family still hadn't heard from her. Tracker dogs were sent to the scene and over 50 police officers joined in the search for Marie. The next day, forensic experts found blood in the area around the emergency phone box and police feared the worst. Marie's dad, Terry, spoke to the assembled press saying, I can't imagine what happened. It baffles me, the police and everybody. On Monday the 20th of June, the nightmare came true for his friends and family. Her body was found. It was in thick scrub at the bottom of an embankment by the side of the eastbound carriageway, three miles from where she had broken down. She'd been stabbed in the left-hand side of her throat, cutting the archery. She'd also been hit or kicked on the left side of her head, breaking her jaw. There was no indication that Marie had been sexually assaulted. There was evidence that a car had driven down onto the hard shoulder and then reversed behind the crash barrier. Detective Chief Superintendent David Cole led the investigation into Marie's murder. He was 50 years old and in his career to date he had investigated 80 murders and of those he had achieved 78 convictions. Profiled in the local newspaper early in the investigation, he was an old school officer who put his faith in a more traditional style of policing, saying, No matter how sophisticated our equipment, a detective follows his nose and the kind of work we've been doing for 150 years leads us to the person who commits these grave offences. There seemed to be no motive for the murder, and David Cole shared the bafflement of Marie's dad, saying that it appears to be a totally opportunistic incident. The question of why someone would abduct and kill a seven and a half month pregnant woman was really hard to fathom. The abduction could scarcely have happened in a more public place. A busy motorway early on a Saturday evening where there were likely to be hundreds of witnesses. Straight away the police appealed to the hundreds of motorists who drove past the scene, asking them to get in touch. They must have been very confident that they would quickly be able to piece together an accurate picture of what had happened to Marie and uncover vital clues that would help them catch the killer. At the scene... Marie's 11-year-old sister had even spoken to a man who'd approached a broken-down marina on the hard shoulder, so surely he and others like him must have seen something. As it turned out, 
there were crucial flaws and contradictions in the evidence collected from witnesses. These days we take it for granted that DNA evidence will play a key part in any investigation. But back in 1988, what was then called genetic fingerprinting was still in its infancy. Images from CCTV cameras did play some part in the investigation, but they were nowhere near the number of cameras available back in 98 as there are now. New technology, for the time, was used on the case, notably the Holmes computer, developed in the wake of the Yorkshire Ripper killings. But this system, which cost £300,000 in 1988, was described by Detective Chief Superintendent Tony Stanley, the head of Worcestershire CID, as not user-friendly. This was alien to police officers with no ground in such systems, and visitors certainly did not use it to its fullest potential. On Tuesday the 21st of June at 7.30pm, a memorial service was held at St George's Church, where Marie had been baptised and confirmed just a month before. And later that week, the Marie Wilkes Family Appeal Fund was launched by the Worcester Evening News and the Hereford and Worcester Army Cadet Force. The day of that launch would have been Marie and Alan's third wedding anniversary. I can't help but wonder how the family got through these first days and weeks. In last week's episode, we saw how a grieving partner turned to alcohol to dull the pain. All the small events in our lives which take on such significance to us in our daily lives, they must all be pushed back into perspective, don't you think? The police released an artist's impression of a man seen at the scene. The description they released at the time said they were looking for a man who was white, with thin, sharp features, a pronounced chin and a long nose, in his 20s, of a youngish appearance. His hair was cut in the modern style. Don't you just love that as a description? Blonde, short and spiky, with possible yellow or orange highlights. He was of smart, casual appearance, as if on his way to a night out. He was wearing a blue-white striped shirt dark or royal trousers. The very next day, Saturday the 25th of June, a week after Marie's abduction, the police staged a reconstruction of events from a week ago. At almost exactly the same time, police were about to make their first arrest in the investigation, when they arrested former Welsh guardsman and club bouncer Eddie Browning at a social club in the Rhonda Valley in South Wales. It was reported that he first came to their attention due to matching the photo fit for blonde hair and people called in to actually give the name Eddie Browning to police. It transpired that at the time of his arrest, Eddie Browning's wife, like Marie, was seven months pregnant. So who was Eddie Browning? Eddie was the eldest of five brothers and known in the valleys of South Wales as a bit of a lad about town. He was attractive to women due to his good looks and charm. His first marriage only lasted three weeks due to domestic violence and his inability to remain faithful, but he married again soon afterwards and had a baby girl. It wasn't long, however, before Eddie was back in trouble, and this wasn't small-time driving offences but aggravated burglary, where he'd raided antique shops and houses in the west of Wales. For this offence, he received a prison sentence of seven years. In prison, he, he wasn't really in the staying-out-of-trouble mindset, At one stage, he seriously injured another prisoner by pushing him down the stairs with a broom. On Tuesday the 28th of June, Eddie appeared in a number of ID parades in Worcester and the following day he was charged with murder. On the 3rd of October 1989, the trial of Eddie Browning began at Shrewsbury Crown Court.
The prosecution evidence against Eddie was all circumstantial, but they felt they had a compelling case. And privately, police officers were absolutely convinced that he was guilty. Eddie Browning resembled the picture created of the killer. He had a history of violence. He owned a butterfly knife and he had driven from his home in Rhonda, South Wales, to Scotland in his silver Renault 25 on the day of Marie's murder to see a friend. It was alleged that he'd been furious following an argument with his wife. He'd got drunk and then left his home to travel north. In court, Eddie said that after leaving Rhonda, he headed east along the M4 and over the Seven Crossing Bridge into England on his way north. But his car wasn't caught on the bridge camera, and it's also a very strange route to take from South East Wales to Scotland. The fastest route by a considerable distance, saving at least 30 miles, would have taken him along the M50 and placed him clearly at the scene of the murder at the time Marie was killed. A number of witnesses saw a striking blonde-haired man resembling Eddie at the scene, and he was also alleged to have confessed to the murder the day before he was arrested to a friend, although he denied this. The prosecution barrister told a hushed court Eddie Browning wielding a butterfly knife with a four-inch blade punctured Marie's jugular vein as she made an SOS telephone call from the emergency phone box. On Friday the 10th of November 1989, there was applause and cheering in the packed public gallery in court as the jury of eight men and four women delivered their unanimous verdict, guilty of murder. Sentencing him to 25 years in prison, the judge said that Browning had a violent disagreement with his wife on the day of the killing. He said, You set out to Scotland with your wife not knowing how long you'd be gone. You saw on the motorway the solitary figure of a pregnant woman. Whether out of spite or rage or any other reason, you determined to wreak violence towards that person. It is plain you intended to take it out of her because she was a defenceless and because she was pregnant. These are matters which singles the case out as a particularly grave one. Marie's husband Adrian broke down in tears. Afterwards he said he was very, very pleased with the outcome. The trial has really been the funeral. Now we can start living our lives again and begin to put it behind us, he said. I just can't understand her killer. There was no motive. She hadn't done anything wrong. She was an innocent who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Marie's dad, Terry, said he was delighted at the outcome. He said the family had received more than 500 letters of sympathy and this had helped them. But Marie's younger sister, Jane, who was 17, was still too terrified to go out on her own. He said they were comforted by Marie's young son, Mark, who he described as the image of Marie. The reaction of 13-year-old Georgina had been to immerse herself in her school studies, where she was now getting top grades. To give an indication of the depth of feeling in the country, the next day the Daily Express newspaper, and back then, I know it's hard to believe, but it was a serious newspaper that was actually taken seriously. I know, I know it's hard to believe today, but it's true. So the headline they ran was, Cheers at life for M50 killer. In May 1991, Eddie Browning appealed against his conviction, but this was rejected. Following this rejected appeal, Eddie certainly wasn't prepared to quietly serve his time. He insisted that he was innocent. Among others, he contacted the BBC's current affairs programme, Week In, Week Out. Journalist on that programme, Tim Rogers, commented, I covered Eddie Browning's trial. 
The evidence was circumstantial, but it convinced the jury. I reported the trial and the verdict. Eddie Browning was demonised and despised, which I and others reported. Some years later, when I joined Week In, Week Out, we received a letter from Eddie Browning, written to us from his cell. He'd heard about our investigation into the Cardiff Three, who were wrongly convicted of the murder of a prostitute, Lynette White. As of course you'll recall, we covered this in episode 8 of this podcast, A Valentine's Day Murder. If you haven't listened to it, take a listen. Like all our cases, it is fascinating, obviously. Eddie Brown asked us to look at the facts of the case. It wasn't one that I relished at the time. I, like many other journalists who reported the original murder, thought we knew better. But look at the facts we did, and we were surprised by what we found. Testing the case against him, our inquiry lasted several months. Questioning the timing of the events and the forensic evidence. Our conclusion was that there were doubts, important and worrying doubts. We were not alone. Other journalists, notably the late Paul Foote of the Daily Mirror and Private Eye, and Tom Mangold of Panorama, had doubts too. Soon the noise became a clamour, and we found ourselves back at the highest court in the land. On May the 14th, 1994, Eddie Browning was once more a free man. The appeal court judges decided his conviction was unsafe, because evidence was kept from his trial by the police. Judges ruled that the jurors might have changed their mind if they'd known of police evidence about the murderer's car that was not disclosed at the trial. Looking at the evidence now, it's quite shocking, and as in a number of cases we've examined in this podcast, it again shows that how under pressure to secure a conviction, investigators don't always provide the full facts to the Crown Prosecution Service. The police, specifically, had not disclosed a video in which Peter Clark, an off-duty West Mercia police officer, was filmed four days before Eddie Browning's arrest, partly under hypnosis to help him recall what he had seen. He described a silver-grey, non-metallic, non-hatchback Renault car with chrome bumpers and a registration number C856HFK. Eddie's car was a hatchback Renault, but with plastic bumpers and the registration number C754VAD. The police also failed to disclose two messages provided earlier in the inquiry by Clark and another witness of what they'd seen on the M50. Neither message contained any reference to a C registration, although both witnesses later provided evidence referring to this letter. Disciplinary proceedings began against Superintendent Anthony Stanley, who was accused of neglect of duty. I wonder how you feel about this. Do you feel sympathy for this senior policeman finishing his, no doubt, successful career in public disgrace? Or is this what he deserves, I guess, for not doing his job correctly? I feel a bit of sympathy for him. Eddie Browning, now 41 years old, certainly felt no sympathy for him or any of the other officers who'd investigated his case as he stood outside the law courts in the Strand, central London, and spoke of West Mercia police as a bunch of bastards. They'd known four days before his rest he was not the killer, he claimed. It's finished with. I can put it to rest. The last six years have been a living nightmare, a total hell for myself and my family and everyone who has stuck by me. His wife, Julie, was by his side as he spoke. I never, ever doubted I would be cleared. I was never, ever going to serve a prison sentence for someone else who is running loose and running free. Never, ever. 
He said he was ready to meet Marie's family any place, any time, so he could prove his innocence 100%. He advised them, they must go back to the West Mersey police, who've lied to them. They must get the truth from them. However, West Mersey's Deputy Chief Constable, David Thursfield, said that no new lines of inquiry were readily apparent. We've done everything we feel we can possibly do in relation to this case. And although, of course, accepting the decision of this court without question, we are, as you would expect, both surprised and disappointed by today's result. Clearly, they still thought that Eddie Browning had killed Marie. They were just not able to prove it in court. Immediately following his release, Eddie Browning was awarded an interim compensation of £75,000, which he claimed to have blown in a two-month spending spree on Caribbean holidays, expensive cars and heavy drinking. He was later awarded further damages in excess of £600,000 to compensate for the time he spent in custody. He planned to use this money, arguably more wisely, or at least more sustainably, to buy a remote farmhouse in Wales where he could live with his new wife. On hearing this news, Marie's widow Adrian told the Birmingham Post newspaper that he was shocked and distressed, but he didn't want to comment further. Family friend and local county councillor Bob Peachy said that Adrian, who had since married nurse Pam Bennett, who had helped him get over Marie's death, and his family just wanted to put the events behind them. In early 2000, Eddie Browning was in court again. A former friend, Kenny Latton, was found not guilty of beating him with an iron bar after forcing his way into his flat to confront him about a newspaper article. Kenny denied wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm at an incident at Eddie's home in Rhonda, South Wales. The court was told that Kenny went to confront Eddie Browning over a newspaper report that a £25,000 reward had been paid to an unnamed informant following his conviction for murder. Kenny was alleged to have wrestled an iron bar away from Eddie and hit him over the head, causing a wound which needed seven stitches. The court heard that during the struggle, Kenny said to Eddie, you admitted to me the night before you were taken in that you murdered that girl. The court also heard that before leaving the scene of the fight, Kenny told Eddie's wife, your husband has admitted to me that he murdered Marie Wilkes. Kenny told the jury that he tipped off police that he thought Eddie was Marie Wilkes' killer but he denied getting the £25,000 reward money for this tip-off. He said, I reported him to the police. I was one of about 14 people who phoned in. The defence suggested that Eddie had invited Kenny to his home. Eddie disagreed, saying, Do you think I'd invite a man into my house who's been paid £25,000 for putting me in prison for murder? The jury took just an hour to acquit Kenny. Outside court, Eddie again rejected Kenny's allegations about the M50 murder, saying, It's not true. It's a pack of lies. Eddie was back in court five years later. In December 2004, he was arrested for drink driving in Lampeter, West Wales. On his arrest, he was found to be carrying a knife. Magistrates in Aberystwyth accepted that he had a good reason for having it at the time of his arrest. He told the court that he used a three-inch blade on his cattle farm to cut bales of hay and had forgotten it was in his pocket when he went out. As we have heard, the murder of Marie Wilkes was a shocking, seemingly opportunistic attack on an innocent woman. What makes it so shocking is the pure randomness. We are told that the chances of being murdered by 
a stranger in a random attack are very low. If we suffer violence, it's likely to be at the hands of someone we know and know well. But this is the fear we all have. I experienced it again just this last week in central London on a tube. When I was in a deserted carriage and something just didn't feel right about the guy opposite who was staring at me. We all know, don't we, that feeling of apprehension and dread that almost envelops us. We just have to hope that it isn't our time and it isn't our friends and families who are also unfortunate enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. We open this episode with the death of Marie's father who went to his grave having not seen justice for the person who killed his daughter. That's a particular strain on your life that it's pretty hard to comprehend because we all want some sort of closure on events and without it we must always be thinking about it. It's always a nagging worry. I imagine this haunted him throughout his life as it has done for her former husband Adrian and other family members and although momentarily forgotten, it's always there, not far from consciousness. Nobody has ever been convicted for the murder of Marie Wilkes. The police clearly felt at the time that Eddie Browning was responsible, but his conviction was quashed. And let's be clear here, this wasn't on a technicality, but it's because there was no evidence against him. If not Eddie, just who did kill Marie Wilkes on that balmy Saturday evening 29 years ago? And will we ever get the answer to that question? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK Weekly True Crime Podcast. Please head to our website at uktruecrime.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Please subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. And of course, leave us one of those great reviews, Five Star Variety. And please take a look at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash uktruecrime to see how you can further help the show. That's all for now. So until we speak again next week, cheerio.